Most of you know me, but if you don't know me, my, my name's Joe. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. And we've been walking through a series called Gospel Rooted Living. Um, and basically this series is about how the gospel, if we're rooted in it, it will change the way we live. It will transform us to be people who are a gospel presence within our community, to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, to everyone who is around us, that the gospel changes us and makes us new, and that that gospel itself is sufficient enough to live a gospel-rooted life. There's nothing else that we need but the gospel itself. We need only Jesus to live a life for him and that faith in him. So last week we talked about fighting for the gospel. We talked about the true gospel produces unity. And lastly, we talked about the gospel creates disciples who have a gospel presence. Last week, we, we talked about fighting for the gospel. We saw Paul fight. He would die for the gospel, and he fought for the truth of the gospel, that it would never be a false gospel circulating around, but it would be the only true gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we also talked about how a false gospel brings disunity because this gospel that was being preached and that Paul's talking about here in Galatians, he's talking about a gospel that's preached to only certain people groups, certain cultures, and that's not the gospel that we believe in. We, the, we believe the gospel is for everyone, whoever may believe. And so, and that unifies us. We could be all kinds of different people. We are all kinds of different people in here. But because of the gospel, we're unified. Biblically unified together with one purpose, one goal in mind. And that's the glory of Jesus. And so we're unified because of the gospel, the only true gospel. And lastly, the gospel, it creates a gospel presence within us. People will see the grace of God in us. They saw the grace they recognize grace in Paul's life. And the question I asked is, people recognize grace in your life? Do they see a gospel presence in your life? Can they see that you're a man or woman of grace? The way you parent, the way you're a husband or a wife, the way you're a co-worker, the way you rest, the way you recreate, the way you handle tragedy. Can they see grace in you? Because if the gospel is real in your life, then you believe it. Because if you can't see the gospel, that means you don't believe it. Not at that time. You might believe it in the past, but you have to live in it. You have to constantly have faith in Jesus Christ. And the gospel will be clear. The grace will be clear in your life. So last week we talked about Paul's journey to Jerusalem. And this week we're going to see Peter's trip to Antioch to visit Paul and the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch was a church of two different kinds of people. It was separated basically 50-50. It was people who were Jews and people who were Gentiles. And there was a, a, a time there that they struggled because of the two Gospels. And we're going to see here how Peter kind of goes back to that old Gospel. And we're going to see how Paul kind of basically tells him he's wrong to his face, which is very odd in our culture. So let's read Galatians chapter 2, 
verses 11 through 21. We're going to go all the way through chapter 2. We're going to finish. When Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one can be justified. But if he in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. In the verse we all know, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Isn't the word good? So we see in verse 11, we see that Paul and Peter have some conflict here. Paul opposes Peter to his face. Not through a text, not through an email, not through Facebook, not through Twitter, not through sending another person for him. Face to face, eyes to eyes that's uncommon in our culture we're all about whatever way we can't get face to face with somebody and feel the uncomfortable feelings of controversy but to look at someone in the eye and to tell them tell them something hard to tell them that they're living in sin to tell them that they're wrong because you love them and because you love the gospel it's okay. It's okay to do that. The Scriptures tell us that we need to do that for one another. That we need to speak the truth in love, as Ephesians tells us to do. But we also live in a culture that plays this judgment game. They play the judgment card. And they say, hold up, you can't judge me. You can't tell me what I'm doing wrong or if I'm living in sin. And they play the judgment card. And no other believer can tell another believer that they're living in sin. Church, listen to me. The Scriptures are so clear. The church should be accountable to one another. We should not be afraid to hear about our sins. 
We should accept it. We should not be too prideful to hear that. We need to accept things like that. Now, to unbelievers, it's a whole different ballgame. But if you call yourself a believer, a disciple, and you say you're a follower of Jesus, the church has every right within the Scriptures to say, hey, look, you don't line up with the Gospel by the way you live your life. You don't line up by what you say. You say you, you, say you believe this, but then you live a completely different life. We have every right in the Scriptures to go to one another in love, in grace, and in truth and tell each other, hey, look, you're not living, you're not living in line with this Gospel that you say you believe. Let's stop playing that judgment card and start being accountable to one another so that we may live in line with the Gospel. I'm not giving you a reason to just go judge everybody. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that are you accountable to one another? Are you loving one another? Are you speaking the truth in love? But also Paul, he gets to the core He gets to the core of the reason of Peter's fall. So we should do the same with each other. See, a lot of times when we see a problem, we always try to change the behavior. Well, you just need to do that, or you just need to do that. What about the heart? What about the attitude? We see Paul do that. He's not trying to change the behavior of Peter, but he searches the attitude and the mindset of Peter. And he says, Brother, You are acting out of line with the gospel because you are a hypocrite. That is strong words. And he not only says it to Peter's face, but he says it to Peter's face with everybody around them. That's harsh. That is is hard. But it's so uncommon because we don't want that uncomfortable feeling. But church, the word calls us to be accountable to one another. I can't say it any more clearly. The Word calls us to be accountable to one another. So, let's go to verse 12. It says, For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. We see Peter ate with Gentiles. Our culture is completely different when it comes to food. I mean, fast food is the way to go. Where their culture, let's take our time. Let's be slow. Let's prepare a meal that we could all share in and build relationships around it. To eat with someone was to be connected to them socially, but also religiously. It was very different in that day than it is today. That's why Jesus was considered a sinner because he ate. Because he ate with those who were sinners. Just to eat, just to hang out, just to be among sinners was considered wrong. And they considered Jesus a sinner and a glutton. When they ate meals together, they planned it out for a very long time. And when they ate really serious meals like we do Thanksgiving, they did that a lot. It's because they were close to one another. And they were connected in a way 
that some of us may not are able to do because we're so busy. We have such busy lives, and that's why we like the fast food. That's why we like to go eat what's quick. That's why we like to go get a, a burrito from Taco Bell and let's call it a, a, a double date. You know, it's, it's not that way back then. They prepared their meals carefully. We even see Jesus use a meal. He uses the Lord's Supper. And it has a greater meaning of who he is and what he's done. Meals meant something. And I want to challenge you. Do you open up your homes? Do you eat with people? Do you eat with people that may not be exactly like you, that live in a different culture than you, that have a different job than you, that there's just so many different types of people, but do you consider them and do you eat with them? And do you love them? And do you share meals with them? Because I've experienced, the first time I ever experienced someone open up their home to me, it was a great experience. Someone opened up their home and they shared a meal with me. And that's close. That's dear. I want to challenge you, church. Open up your homes. Eat with people. Dine with people. Let them be a part of your life. We tend to be so personal. We tend to be so to ourselves. But the gospel calls us out of that. And it calls us to a life of openness and a life of grace. Let's turn to Acts chapter 10. We're going to look at Peter's revelation. Turn to Acts chapter 10 with me. This dude keeps going back to Acts. Why does he keep going back? It's because there's so much history there. There's so much goodness there that we get to understand where Peter is, what he understands about this um, dietary laws. So Acts chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 9. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Amen. <laughs> We all like bacon. We all like uh, deer wrapped in bacon. We like bacon, period. Okay? Uh, but guys, that is a dream. You know, that's a great dream. You got the sheep coming down with a bunch of animals, and Jesus says, kill and eat. That's awesome. Just saying. Um, so, let's see. What was that? 14. 14. There we go. Okay. Surely not, Lord. So Peter tells Jesus, no. Not the first time, right? Uh, I have never eaten anything impure or clean. I feel sorry for him. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's 
house was and stopped at the gate. So after this vision, Peter's still thinking like, what does this vision mean? You know, the sheet comes down and a bunch of animals on it, reptiles, all types of four-legged you know, animals, and Jesus just tells me straight up, kill and eat. In Leviticus it says, don't do that. He's lived his whole life never eating anything unclean. So this is very odd. This is very odd for, for Peter, and that's why he's just like, nope, can't do that. But it's important to learn that we never should tell Jesus no, because he has it right all the time. So we see later on in that chapter, let's see if I can find it. Uh, verse 24, The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expected them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with our visit with, with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or clean. So you see here that he's understanding the vision a little bit better. He's saying, look, I shouldn't call anybody impure or unclean. And you see later, uh, in, in chapter 11, he starts to explain this vision to, to these, these, uh, these people in Jerusalem, the circumcised. They're, they're asking him, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? And he goes on explaining, he tells them, you know, I saw this vision, blah, blah, blah. Jesus told me, hey, Peter, kill and eat. And then he said, so if God, in verse 17 of chapter 11, so if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? What gift is he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's like, what am I supposed to do? Like, the Holy Spirit fell, and they believed. Like, am I supposed to argue with God? I can't argue with God. He saved these people, and the Holy Spirit came in to these people. So Peter understood. He understood what it was to eat with Gentiles and it to be okay. Because he had a vision from Jesus. And he also understood that vision very clearly. And he, he actually opposed those who were in Jerusalem. And he said, look, what am I supposed to do? This is exactly what happened. You want me to tell God not to save people? To bring the Holy Spirit? Like, so he understood. Peter knew. So let's go back to Galatians. In verse 13... The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. That's why leaders are so important. When leaders fall, most of the time the people that are being equipped by them fall as well. We need leaders who don't live hypocritical lives but live in line with the gospel to live according what they teach and what they believe. Here's the thing that we've learned from this, though. If hypocrisy invades the church, 
it will spread because it's contagious. Why does Peter even become a hypocrite? Because he fears man. Remember, we learned back in chapter 1, verse 10 in Galatians that you can't be a people pleaser and a servant of God. You either serve God or you serve people without God. You can serve people with God. You can serve people and love God. But if you see people as God and you see people as more important than God, you can't do both. You can only have one master. He wanted to please people. And there was some probably some, some pretty legitimate fear too. I mean, I don't want to just say that he was, uh, you know, he just wanted to please people, but there was some legitimate fear. I mean, they did kill Jesus. They had some power to hurt him. So we understand that there was probably some fear because they had the power to persecute him and to hurt him. But understand this, your hypocrisy can ultimately compel, it can compel someone to stray away from the truth of the gospel. That's how powerful your hypocrisy is. Not only that, but it affects non-believers as well. We hear that all the time. When you talk about the church, the first word that comes up is hypocrite. Our hypocrisy, if you're living in hypocrisy, if you're a hypocrite, it's contagious. It's contagious to the church, but it's also a bad picture of the church to non-believers. Let's look at 14, verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? See, Paul gets to the core of Peter's hypocrisy, and he tells him that his actions don't line up with the gospel. Do you strive to live in line with the gospel on a daily basis? If you want to live in line with the truth of the gospel, you must fix your eyes on Jesus, the author of and finisher of our faith. He must be the one we fix our eyes on. But we're going to get to that a little bit later in, in verse 20. We're going to understand what that means to fix our eyes on Jesus, to concentrate on Him, to really seek His face. So what is the truth of the gospel? In verse 15 and 16 it says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. Okay, just to clear something up, we're the sinful Gentiles. We're not the Jews, we're the sinful Gentiles. Now that a person is not, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's good news. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one can be justified. You see, we are justified by faith in Jesus alone. Not any works we have done. Not anything we have done. 
We cannot add to Jesus. There's nothing we could do to add to Jesus' work. His work is good enough. What He's done on the cross, His life, death, and resurrection, that's the only work that we can trust. Because, just frankly, the Scripture tells us that our works are like filthy rags. And it even has a deeper meaning that this is very gross. But that's how our works really, even our best works, is nothing compared to the work of Jesus. And that's the only work that we can trust for salvation, for justification. So what does this word justification mean? I've talked about this before, but there's justification, there's sanctification, there's glorification. That's salvation as a whole. Salvation is just the moment you get saved, which is justification. But it goes all the way to when Jesus comes back, when we go to heaven and we see him face to face. Justification is when Jesus and his work, his life, his perfect life, justifies you before a holy God. You are looked at as blameless before God because of the work of Jesus. You see, we cannot live the life that Jesus lived. No one will, and no one ever has. Only Jesus can live a perfect life. That's good because He's the only one that can sacrifice as well. He's the only one who can go on the cross and make that sacrifice for us. He's the one who lived the perfect life, died your death that you deserved, and rose again that you may live. That is good news. That is the gospel. And we are only justified. We are only made right before God. We are only acceptable for God. We are only able to go before the throne of God through Jesus. And trusting in that, believing that, putting faith in that Jesus, you will be justified. You will be made right. Righteous before God. He takes your unrighteousness and He gives you His righteousness. That's a great exchange. So that is the truth of the Gospel. That we're justified only by faith in Jesus Christ. But also there's a deeper meaning here that we have to understand that He's talking about unclean and clean. They're eating They're eating with Gentiles, and then he stops eating with these Gentiles. Because there's an issue of clean and unclean. If you eat with the Gentiles and you eat what they eat, then you're unclean. You can't go before God. You can't worship Him. You can't come in His presence. But Jesus, He clears all that up. Because He says, you're clean through me. He says, what I did on the cross, what I did on on the earth, when I rose on the grave you're made clean which the law cannot do the law only shows us that we're sinners I've heard it explained this way that 
The law is kind of like if you're sick or you have cancer and you go into the doctor and they have to do an MRI on you. The MRI is the law. It diagnoses. It shows you. It tells you that you are in need of a Savior because you are not holy before a holy God. But that's not the cure. That just shows you. But the cure is what they give you to get rid of the cancer, to get rid of the sickness. And Jesus is our cure. And the law is the MRI. And we have to look at that correctly. Because if any moment we look at the law as being something that we could be justified, we're strictly talking about justification here. But if we look at the law as something that we could be justified by, then we move to a false gospel. The only true gospel is when we look to Jesus for our cure. We can come in the presence of God because of Jesus and what he's done. We are made holy and blameless. Jesus has made a way for us that God can look at his people and say he's good, he's clean, he's holy, he's righteous, he's good to go in my presence. Let's go down to 17. It says, But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Basically saying, it's not an excuse to sin because Jesus has some grace. Because Jesus is gracious to you doesn't mean that that gives you an opportunity to sin. Just because you're a sinner and the law doesn't save you, doesn't mean that you can just go on sinning. Because there's still the law. But there's also grace. And grace compels us to live according to His law. According to His commands. One of His commands that Jesus says is, Go and make disciples. Do we take that command seriously? Do we take that command in a way that He wanted us to take it? and Say, oh, not later, but now. As a disciple, we make disciples. And that's a command that Jesus has given us. But we don't do that because we have to. But we do that because God's grace compels us to. And there's a big difference. Because if we always go in to try to, to live by the law, it gets tiring. It gets hard. Because ultimately one day, or very soon you won't be able to live up to that law. But you're free to live. You're free to live in the obedience to Jesus. Let's go to verse 20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Remember I was talking about being in Christ and the implications and the importance of understanding what it means to be in Christ? Here it says, you have been crucified with Christ. 
So his death means something. His death is your death. It's death to yourself. We live in a culture where everything is about us. Everything is about me. If it's not about me, it's not worth anything. Christ, he completely destroys that. Because he calls us to something greater. He said, those who carry their cross can be my followers. Those who give up their life will gain life. You died the death that Christ died because you were in Christ. But you know what's good? You don't stay there. You don't stay as a dead life. But you, you are made perfect by His resurrection. That you can have a resurrected life. That's why it says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life of Christ, Christ Himself, lives in you. Don't become numb to that. Christ, God, God Himself lives within you. That is amazing. That you could live a life for Christ because Christ lives inside of you. It says, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Faith isn't just the moment that we receive Christ. It's not just justification. We must constantly fix our eyes on Jesus. Always having faith in the Son of God. That's the only way we will live a gospel-rooted life is if we fix our eyes on Jesus and we have faith in Him on a daily basis. The moment we turn from faith in Jesus is the moment we stop living a life that looks like the gospel. Lastly, in verse 21, it says, I do not want to set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. How often do you set aside God's grace? You say, God, I really don't need your grace. I can handle it on my own. I got this. I can, I can live a life that's pleasing to you. But he says, don't set aside the grace of God. Because if you set aside the grace of God, then Jesus, He died for nothing. You must receive His grace in faith. Because if you don't, you live a life that's opposed to the cross and opposed to the resurrection. If you want to live a life for Christ, live in faith. Trust Jesus daily. Trust His work on the cross. Trust that. If you want to live a life that's pleasing to Him, faith. Faith is all you need. Faith in the Son of God. If you think that you can please God any other way, it's a wrong gospel. As the band comes up, 
I want you to think about, do you set aside the grace of God that you may live a life that's pleasing to Him on your own so that you can puff up and get pride and boast about it? Or do you accept and have faith in this grace in Jesus Christ? Do you trust Jesus daily? If you're asking yourself, why do I live this way? Why can't I live for Jesus daily? Why can't I think about Jesus at least once a week? It's because you have to go back to Jesus and faith in Him. It really is that simple. We just try to make it more difficult because we think it has to be difficult. But it's not. Because Jesus made a way for us. Also, I want you to ask yourself, are you living in hypocrisy? Do you live a hypocritical life? Do you match up to the gospel? Do you live a life worthy of the gospel as, it, as Paul speaks about in Philippians? Do you look like you're a person who truly believes the good news of Jesus? We all struggle. We all aren't perfect. But if you're constantly living in a two-faced life, it's going to destroy the church. And it is destroying the church. Church, live lives that line up with the gospel. And the way you do that is faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. Your word is so good. God, I pray that we could be Paul's to each other. That we have Paul's step in and say, you're not living according to the gospel. You're not living in line and in step with this gospel that you say you believe. God, bring people like that in our lives. May we be that to others. God, with the hypocrisy, there's only one place that we can go, and that's to your son Jesus for repentance. So God, I ask as we think about that, that your Holy Spirit would convict, would move, would reveal there is any hypocrisy in our lives. And God, help us daily to focus on your Son Jesus, His work, that we may never go to our works, but that we can point to Jesus and we can say all glory is to Him. God, as we respond, we ask that your son would be lifted up and exalted, and that he would be seen clearly. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.